Welcome to Huddle Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Inda NTR. Hi, Inda. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? Very, very good. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. Looking forward to the holidays. I am too. I am too. I, I, and I woke up this morning to uh, a nice dusting of snow on the ground, and that always gets me uh, in, in the mood for the season. So I was thrilled to see that. Yeah, we're going to have a white Christmas. Well, I, I, I hate to break it to end it, but I think it's going to rain in a few days. Oh, no. <laughs> I was hopeful. <laughs> but maybe the snow will come back after that. I hope so. <laughs> Or do you have any winter activities that you do? Um, actually, this year we might do some gift swapping. And if there's enough snow, maybe we'll play outside in the snow. Definitely. And I know the ski hills are supposed to start opening soon. Uh, and I love to hike in the woods and also like the snowshoes. So we're, I'm really hoping for snow this winter. Yeah. And going back to the bunny hill for snowboarding for the seventh year. <laughs> Never graduating. <laughs> I, I, I want to try snowboarding, but I think it might be too late for me. I think I see some injuries in my future if I try. <laughs> well, you know, Linda, you know how um, much I pay attention to uh, Huddle's uh, analytics and, and the interest that people take in our stories. Mm-hmm. And um, you did a story uh, a couple of weeks ago that was, you know, part of the inspiration for today's podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the story about... Um, the planned new uh, solar-powered neighborhood in in the Moncton area, and I got to tell you, Enda, that story took off. Um, it's it's one of our top performers this month in terms of the interest people took at it. You know, it's more than ten thousand page views. Mm-hmm. So you know, people are taking an active interest in the story. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so it's it's a very interesting story actually because it's almost like. Um, there's this new development, but it's also a test site for a project that uh, NB Power and Siemens uh, are doing, um, studying the smart grid and you know how to kind of uh, integrate more renewables and um, into the grid and also uh, solve the peak energy problem. And so this, these homes are going to be, um, you know, are going to have technology that Siemens is developing, uh, but subsidized uh, by funding from the federal government um, because of the funding that was given into this project. And so what is this neighborhood going to look like? Like, how big is it going to be? I think it's something like 100 homes over five years-ish is, is, uh, is my understanding. But um, I think the uh, developer, Solaire Homes, uh, plans to start the first phase with, with 20 homes. Um, and then they're going to also, uh, they're planning to have a model home open Sometime next summer, um, there, I think the houses are going to cost between two hundred seventy thousand to four hundred thousand each, depending on uh, the technology and the size and all that. And, and why do you think people are are excited about this? You know, we're very much we can very much tell that just you know just through the interest in the story that you wrote. Mm-hmm. I think, Mark, we've had this conversation with our team kind of like trying to unpack why are people interested in this? And it's a long story. Um, You know, we it's it's a long read um, that goes into a lot of details as well. Um, But I I don't know, maybe it's maybe people are really want to do something to, you know, reduce um, their their contribution to climate change and all that. And maybe this is kind of a sign that they can do this in a, in a big way through, you know, buying homes that are built for that. And, you know, and I also think, you know, with a story like this, and it always, there almost feels like too, there's kind of an aspirational element to these kinds of stories that excites people. So like, I, I, you know, I think about myself and I think, you know, I live in an, in an old home, uh, in the south end of St. John that yeah. was built in the late 19th century. Um, you know, it's it's two floors. It's a few thousand square feet. It's uh, got, you know, 12-foot ceilings. It's, it's you know, it's very grand, uh, you know, old St. John home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it actually has um, uh, old fireplaces that aren't in use anymore that that used to, you know, burn coal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so... I guess all that to say is it's not a very environmentally efficient home, Inda. And as much as I love it, uh, you know, I think about that a lot. And and I think about what I could do to improve it. Or I mm-hmm. think, you know, should we be living in these homes at all anymore? And then, you know, I think about 
uh, you know, the car that I own is, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's a fossil fuel burner and mm-hmm. it's a, it is a big car that we use to, you know, haul kids around to hockey with. And so I'm always looking at my own personal habits and thinking, you know, I walk to work so I don't commute, but I'm always, you know, we're always doing that kind of analysis is of, you know, am I doing my part to, you know, to, to, you know, cut down on the, on, on the fossil fuels I burn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I read stories like this and, and I got in, I get inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, how do you, how do you feel like, how do you see your own life? I mean, I, I, got pretty excited because it means that you know by the time i would be ready to maybe invest in my own home then there will be options that are uh, net zero and saves a lot on on my contribution to you know greenhouse uh gas emissions and all that and uh it's it's just super cool that it's happening in the city i don't know why but so far in my head um when i'm thinking of like living off the grid and all of those things like being net zero means you're kind of like you can't do that in the city but this makes it almost more achievable um in my mind anyways no absolutely and and uh and so i i truly believe that 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 is what inspired a lot of people about this particular story so i certainly took note uh, after we published it and i saw the intense interest in it and um around the same time inda um an environmentalist and uh, and and writer in the province, uh, Carl Divenvorden, put up a social media post um, that I saw on Facebook mm-hmm. about him converting uh, his house and his car um, to to solar power. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he he lives uh, in, you know north of Fredericton uh, in in a in a rural area, and uh, and he decided that he was going to that he wanted to power the home um through solar mm. and uh he had already a couple of years ago um bought an ev uh and uh it was a hybrid and he's since upgraded to a full electric vehicle and so this solar system that he installed uh, will also uh you know keep his car charged mm. and what what I find really interesting about Carl and and he had actually written uh, a couple of pieces for us um in the summer of 2018 about his experience uh, buying, you know, hybrid and then an EV. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he wrote a lot, very granular about the details, you know, the reasons why he bought the car and the research he did around, you know, the cost benefit analysis and the benefit to the environment. Mm-hmm. And those stories, the same as, as this one into like very popular, you know, thousands and thousands of New Brunswickers read the pieces that, that he wrote. And I remember being struck at the time by, the interest then in the pieces that mm-hmm. that he wrote, and you know he's the kind of environmentalist where he's it's all about practical application for him, mm-hmm. and and trying to you know convey the importance of reducing greenhouse ga- gas emissions in our in our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and as he points out in you know in the chat that I have with him that you're going to hear in a few minutes. Um, you know, our biggest the biggest sources of of, fossil, of burning fossil fuels and greenhouse gases uh, is they're you know in our how we power our homes. Mm-hmm. It's in how it's in transportation and how we power our cars. And so I appreciated his um, his sense of of pushing environmental causes by forcing us to look at our own lives. And he just decided that he was going to take a look at his own life, you know, and, and, and convert to driving an electric vehicle and, you know, deciding to power, uh, his home using solar energy. And he was telling me that his own Facebook post generated huge interest. And so, you know, when I read your piece and I saw how popular it was and how much it was connecting with people, and then I saw Carl's uh, social media post Mm -hmm. and, and I saw the, you know, the response to it on Facebook. And then I thought back to the pieces Carl had written for us. Uh, I decided that, Inda, I wanted to have a chat with him. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. So what did you guys talk about? Well, uh, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save that for the conversation. Uh, but I, what I really wanted to talk to Carl about is, is taking that conversation that we have about uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, a, a lot of us can get lost in the bigger conversation 
you know, around emissions targets. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk to Carl to bring it right down to that personal level. And, and, and one of the things I also like about Carl that you'll, you'll get a sense of in this conversation is he, he doesn't see this as unachievable. This is not, you know, him, the environmentalist, um, an activist, uh, doing things that you and I can't do uh, from a financial point of view. And, uh, and so that's the kind of conversation, design, conversation that I wanted to have with him. So let's get to it. Awesome. Can't wait to hear it. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing this morning? Oh, just great. Thanks. How about yourself? Excellent. Excellent. So tell me, where are you right now? Uh, I'm at home in Upper Kingsclear, just outside Fredericton. And I normally work from home, and I guess now I've got the convenience of a two-week self-isolation, so I will definitely be working from home for the next little while. I was just away out of province picking up my sons for the Christmas holiday. Right. So you all, all, all uh, are there four of you now hunkered down for a couple of weeks? Uh, yeah, that's right. The fridge is full, and the freezer is full, and the pantry is full. So fingers crossed we'll do okay, and we have some neighbors on standby to make contactless delivery if it becomes necessary. And where do you live, Carl? Tell me a little bit about your, your surroundings, where, where your house is. Uh, I live in Upper Kingsclear on the Maserol Settlement Road, so it's about 20 minutes outside of Fredericton. Uh, I lived in the city of Fredericton when I met my wife, and she had this house out in the country. It's on a two-acre lot. It's mostly treed, and uh, she had built it herself. Before, again, before I arrived on the scene, this house is an R2000, so that's a nice high standard of energy efficiency. And when we rationalized where we would live, it made sense for me to move out to the country. So I sold my house in the city. And, well, I was raised on a dairy farm uh, when I was a kid, so I was used to country life. And so here I am back in the country. And again, about a two-acre lot that we have here, a nice energy-efficient house and really mostly trees on our property. Right, and the house was built that way, right, from scratch. Yeah. See, it's interesting, right? We hear a lot about energy efficiency and energy efficiency retrofitting and that type of thing. Truly, the best way to have energy efficiency is to design it right into a building from the start. I mean, it's, it's nice to be able to retrofit and put more insulation in your walls and in your ceilings and in your basement and to improve your windows and all of that sort of thing. But it's much nicer if that is done by design from the start. It's a small investment extra when you're building a house, but it's investment, not an expense, because it pays for itself over time. So this house has always been nice and warm and efficient, and um, and so it just made sense for us to live here. And so you grew up on a farm yourself. Where did you grow up? I grew up on the North Shore in the village of Beldoon. Uh, I spent uh, spent a lot of time in a tractor seat when I was a kid. Spent a lot of time milking cows when I was a kid. And then I went to agricultural college, and my first job brought me here to the Fredericton area. But uh, I, my heart is near and dear. Agriculture is near and dear to my heart. I mean, it's uh, my parents were immigrants from Holland, and dairy farming is just what an awful lot of Dutch immigrants did. And I'm very grateful for that background because I think I learned a lot there. I learned practicality. I think I learned uh, how to put in a good day's work. And I learned about the importance of food. I mean, my heavens, we all depend on food. Sometimes we get hung up a bit about sectors of our economy that, uh, economy that may have a bit more pizzazz and that we think will, will give us make us that million and, and that sort of thing. Well, food is a foundational thing. You know, we all eat three meals a day, and that's thanks to the folks who grow that food and, the, I guess, the planet that makes it possible for us to produce that food. And tell me about your early interest in environmental issues and, 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 and you know, and how that, because a lot of the reason why I wanted to chat with you today is that, and then that blend with, with practicality and, and finding solutions, you know, that are right in front of us. Where did that spark start for you? Oh, my, Mark. It started very, very early for me. Um, you know, I speak, I write, and I consult on environmental issues, and I do a lot of presentations in front of live audiences in non-COVID times. And I'll often start by telling the story of how I got into this in the first place, because it may seem a little counterintuitive that someone who was raised on the farm now uh, works in environmental issues. And 
The story is, I was raised up in Beldun, and for the first four years of my schooling as a kid, I went to the old Beldun school. And up in Beldun, at the time, there were two main industries which employed most of the folks around. They were the smelter and the fertilizer plant. And the old Beldun school was located right between the smelter and the fertilizer plant. I mean, the school was there first, and then those industries grew up beside. And I guess those were the days before we did environmental impact assessments. And anyways, I can remember very clearly as a kid going to that school in Beldun, and some days the smoke from the fertilizer plant, which was just upwind from our school, the smoke from that on heavy, cloudy days would hang over our schoolyard like a fog, and we weren't allowed to go outside. Or if we were allowed we'd come back in and we might have a kind of a burning sensation in our throats. And, you know, as a kid, I didn't know anything about the environment, um, except I knew something that I think any kid knows, and that is um, you don't run a car in a closed garage. And then I'd think, but wait a minute, isn't our planet kind of like a big closed garage? Nothing goes out, nothing comes in. And then I'd wonder, where does that stuff go coming out of that smokestack? And the answer always seemed to be, yeah, it just goes away. And that didn't work for my child's mind. And so the early seeds of concern about what, I guess, what we, all of us collectively, and not deliberately, but all of us collectively, are having as an impact on our planet. So for a long time, those seeds lay dormant, I guess, down inside of me. And I went to agricultural college and I had a wonderful early career working in agriculture, but always had that concern inside me about in, the impacts of humanity on our environment. And then I learned about climate change and, uh, and I got to thinking, wow, climate change is a really big one. We really need to deal with climate change. And a little voice inside me got a bit louder saying, do something when my first son was born and I didn't know what to do. And my second son was born two years later in 2001. The little voice gets a little louder, says, do something. And I still didn't know what to do, except that I knew climate change was a big deal. And then in 2007, I heard about this book called An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore. And I thought, the Al Gore wrote a book about climate change? And I remember getting it and reading it and telling my wife, I said, Karen, I think this book is going to change the world for two reasons. One, it's written by a famous person. And two, it takes this big issue of climate change and brings it down to common language where we can understand it all. And then we found, then I found out that Al Gore would be training people to present live versions of that slideshow that he presents in An Inconvenient Truth. And I thought, that's for me. That's where the little voice can become the bigger voice. So I applied and became one of the first Canadians to be trained with Al Gore. And, well, that was 2007, and ever since then I've been speaking, writing, and consulting on environmental issues, striving to be the big voice that can help build awareness of the challenge that we face, but also, really importantly, the solutions that are out there. Right, and, and all of it starting from that, that early, early seed of, of just feeling, literally feeling something was wrong in your lungs. Oh, absolutely. Just looking at that and saying, wait a minute, this does not compute. We can't be just dumping things without consequence into our atmosphere. You know, maybe it goes away, uh, but I don't think so. I think it just goes elsewhere. You know, and, and, and Carl, you know, when I, when I uh, talk to you about this um, and I just, you know, describe the ways in which you inspire me when we chat and when I read the things that you write, I kind of will get that kind of like eye glaze with people, right? Because we get so accustomed to thinking about issues like climate change on that kind of grand scale, you know, in terms of, you know, overall reductions targets, uh, you know, and, and government and, and industry. And we don't often take this down to that very practical level. And, you know, a couple of years ago when we, you, we, you know, you and I first chatted about, your the EV that you you had purchased and and we talked about publishing um, your blogs. You know, I was really struck by how popular they were when we started to we started to publish them. Um, you know, thousands of page views and and keen interest. Uh, and and it struck me at the time of how much you were able to connect with people on that very granular um, you know street level with something as simple as the purchase of a car and your and your way of of describing the process of buying it, um, 
and and operating it. Um, can you can you take me back to that you know that decision to you know to purchase your first car and also you know blog about it? Oh sure. Um, well, again, I've been a student of, and I really I, I would say a student because the process of learning about climate change and solutions to me is just constant learning, constant learning. It's constantly evolving, and it's really important to focus. I mean, we can be, to your to what you mentioned earlier, we can get a bit overwhelmed by all this information and become uh, get our eyes glazed to it, and then we just keep doing what we're doing. So the really important thing is to bridge from there to, okay, here are the solutions. And so I strive to do that for myself because sometimes it seems to me an example, uh, doing something is the best way to learn more about it and perhaps the best way to inspire others via your example. So in, our, in, in Canada, the biggest carbon footprint that the typical person would have would come from their transportation and from their use of electricity in their homes. So I thought, well, if it's if you imagine our carbon emissions as a pie chart, those are the two biggest slices of the pie. So I've thought, well, it's all good to focus on any area of our emissions, but logically it probably makes the most most sense to tackle the biggest slices. So I've always been on the lookout for efficiency in vehicles. I guess I've always driven efficient vehicles with the awareness that it's still the, that it was one of the biggest slices of my own uh, my own carbon footprint and so when electric vehicles started to come along i became more interested and you know i i get that uh, people don't have the resources to, in, to 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 afford really expensive vehicles because i'm in that space myself i can't afford big fancy cars but i was keeping an eye on electric vehicles and and thinking, boy, when as soon as they become reasonably affordable for us, I want in. And that time arrived in 2017. And um, at the time, I was researching what are the models that are out there. I was trying to correlate with what are our needs as a family. How far do we need to go? What do we need for range and, and, and that type of thing? And I settled on focusing on the Chevy Volt. That's the car that I was going to look into getting because the Chevy Volt, that's Volt with a V as in Victor. Um, the Chevy Volt is a battery hybrid. So it has a battery system where the car will operate entirely on electric until the battery is depleted. And then a motor kicks over, kicks in and seamlessly, like seamlessly starts. And you can be driving down the road in the thing, and you wouldn't even notice when the battery finishes, the motor starts. But then you never have to worry about running out of range. I mean, any more than in a conventional vehicle, because from that perspective, it had a gas gauge. And you just make sure you don't run out of gas. But the nice thing for the Volt was, its battery was big enough that it could handle our regular commute. So the car would be perfect for a run into town from Upper Kingsley here into Fredericton and back, entirely on battery. And then we just plug it in in a regular wall outlet in our garage and it would be full the next day and we could do it again. And then for the periodic times that we needed to go a bit longer, well, the motor was there. So if we wanted to go to Halifax for something, well, the first 100 kilometers or so we'd go on battery and then the motor would take over and no worries whatsoever or even longer trips anywhere that you wanted to go. So anyways, um, I made the, the, I started looking for volts and there aren't too many EVs here in New Brunswick available, but I found there's a really good used market in Quebec. And the reason is in Quebec, there is a really good provincial incentive on electric vehicles. Now, federally, we now have a $5,000 incentive on electric vehicles, but in Quebec, there's another, there's an additional 8,000. So that means you can knock $13,000 off the price of a new vehicle. And those type of savings translate then into the used market because no one can charge more for a used vehicle than they would for a new vehicle minus the incentives. So there's quite an uptake of EVs in Quebec. So from that flows that there is quite a, a pool of secondhand vehicles. So I started looking online. I found myself a Volt in Montreal. I bought it and brought it here, and I had the Volt for two years. It was wonderful. It was a great vehicle to learn about transitioning to electric because it still had that engine as a backup, and it really had worked wonderfully. And after two years, I thought, maybe it's time to 
maybe it's time to make the leap over to full electric. So I did the same process. I started looking at the market in Montreal, and I found myself a Chevrolet Bolt, this time uh, with a B for Bravo, which is a full electric. And now we have that for about the last year. And I mean, it's it's been wonderful. It has limitations. It, it limitations. Its range is limited. It's is reduced a bit in winter because it's battery, but uh, you can manage around that. And the big pluses of it have been that we have that vehicle now for over a year, and it has never yet been into a shop for maintenance. Only for tire changes, for seasonal tire changes. That's the only maintenance in a year. We just fill it uh, from a wall outlet in our garage, and it's to the point where I really don't know what the price of gasoline is anymore, I guess. So um, so to me, that's been just a really nice way to deal with that big slice of our carbon footprint, which was our transportation. And in terms of uh, affordability, you know, first the Volt and then and then the Bolt. What what was the the cost benefit you did on what you paid for those cars versus the you know the payoff? I mean, you mentioned just talking about the Bolt. You, you mentioned not even being in a garage for over a year. Right, and I'm not sure, Mark, that I can give a precise cost benefit. I mean, for me, there's a significant principal element of it, which is I just wanted to be off of fossil fuel transportation. But when you factor everything in, the operating costs, I, I have done a bit of research in terms of, I haven't done the math specifically for my own case, but a number of years ago, I wrote a column comparing the costs of um, comparable EVs to comparable internal combustion engines. And it came down to everything in an EV costs about a third to run compared to a comparable sized internal combustion engine vehicle. So you can do the math on that. If you save two thirds, then you can use those savings to finance perhaps a, a bit of a bigger car loan because it's true, they are bigger cost up front, but boy, they sure save when it comes to the, the operational side of it. So when you say the um, the savings of around two thirds, you're thinking of it fuel and, and, and car repairs. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, that's right. Everything factored in that was. And so if, if you were talking to, say, somebody in New Brunswick or Nova Scotia, you, you, would your first piece of advice would be shop in Quebec or, or can we do this here now? I think the landscape is changing somewhat. So I would say just be prepared to do a little bit of homework and perhaps consult with other local EV owners. They tend to be, to my experience, EV owners tend to be very generous with their experiences and with their time. There are a couple of good Facebook groups, for example, out there where people can join and ask questions and get feedback from owners with real world experience. There are an increasing number of EVs showing up at dealerships in New Brunswick. So if you'd like to have the, the comfort of buying from a local dealer that you know and trust, then that's a way that you can go. Because now I do see that some dealers are stocking EVs. And of course, as we go forward, um, my heavens, it's hard to keep up with the changes. There are so many new electric vehicle models that are either arriving soon or in the development stages. So so, so back to advice for, for someone. I guess the first thing I would say is think about what it is that you expect to need in terms of range, then start to do a little research on the models that might uh, meet those needs, and then start looking around at where the supply is, whether it is as a, at a local new dealer, at a local used dealer, because there is actually now a dealership in the Maritimes, and I think it has a branch in uh, Halifax area and also on Prince Edward Island that stocks all models of electric vehicles. And that's the only thing that they sell, electric vehicles. Or if you want to do it the way that I did it, you know, if, if you feel confident enough in what you've chosen and the price point that you're looking for, well, you can go out of province, get into a lightly used vehicle um, in a market like Montreal or Quebec City or something like that. That can be a really good option, too. And I think uh, there's also talk, and we did a story about this, I think, around a month and a half or so ago, about uh, about a, a Tesla showroom opening up in Halifax, possibly uh, in the next uh, little while. But that's right. Yep. 
and Tesla's, it's, it's very interesting, right, how Tesla has changed the market because, I mean, first of all, uh, they seem to have thought of everything in those beautiful vehicles. They're so cool. They're so powerful. They have these wonderful features and, and all of these great innovations. And it is so nice if you can go and sit in one and go for a drive. And then you know, previously, I guess you'd have to go a little bit on spec or had to go travel somewhere in order to test drive one of them. And now that's available locally. So that's very, very good. But one nice thing specifically I like about Tesla's, and to and this is very much to their credit, and that is I think for a lot of people, sustainability is synonymous with sacrifice or giving up something. And Tesla broke that model, I think, because there is no compromise in a Tesla. My heavens, you get a Tesla, you have stepped up in pretty much every way. So so they're wonderful vehicles. And it's nice that, yes, to your point, there's now a place where you can go and visit and test and buy right here in the Maritimes. Yeah. And I, I actually had the, um, the, the good fortune CAA uh, purchased a, a car um, that I think, uh, you know, it's sort of permanently housed in in uh, Halifax, but they've been touring this this car around the Maritimes and offering test drives um, to people in in yeah in communities. And it was in St. John uh, several weeks ago, and I I took a I went out and took a test drive in it. It was it was wonderful, <laughs> um, and uh, it it also makes me think, Carl, too, around around Tesla because we kind of pay a lot of attention to you know to. Uh, to Elon Musk and and to Tesla and to the ways in which he successfully promotes uh, that car, you know that that company now is is worth way more than you know you know the, the the actual number of cars it produces. Like it's he's you know captured captured people's imaginations and and uh, you know has one of the most uh, you know valued stocks probably in in the world. Um, is that helping kind of advance this in terms of people's acceptance, do you think? Well, it's, it's, I, I think there are a couple of things there. One, first of all, I, I think Tesla truly has been so innovative in many ways. So they are just pushing the leading edge of the bell curve. And to some extent, probably uh, they are dragging all of the other manufacturers into that area because they are creati- creating something that is really cool and that works really well, and um, and 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 as a result, I, I think they've become, you know, they've become too big and too good and too cool and too innovative for the other manufacturers not to take note and say, "Oops, I guess we need to be in that space." So they've they've really led the charge that way. And again, as I mentioned earlier, they've made sustainability uh, in transportation cool. And fun, so they're just they're just world changers. Yeah, and absolutely, and and you know, there's certainly a lot of a lot of uh, criticisms of, of Elon Musk certainly out there, but um, he's dogged, if not anything, right? Like he he's gone through some some rough patches in terms of producing the vehicles for the mass market, uh, but hasn't let it in any way deter him at all. Yeah, it's amazing what they have overcome in uh, in terms of challenges. You know, getting into a big industry like that and elbowing your way into a market where there are a limited number of suppliers and they have all kinds of resources and they can well, they can probably push back pretty good. And yet he succeeded in getting in. That uh, that speaks volumes. I've I've uh, yeah. I've thought mm, in history who would be a comparable person to Elon Musk and maybe it would be Thomas Edison who seemed to be one of these ones who had his fingers into so many pies as well and somehow could just seem to come up with all kinds of innovations. That's Elon Musk, it seems, uh, with all of the various business areas that he's into and creating an in- innovation and and disruption, I guess would be the word, in so many of them. How are we doing? Oh, a couple more questions around EVs, and I do want to move into your your latest project around um, solar power in your home. But are we? Uh, how are we doing for for charging stations in in the region right now? Like, if you're an owner of an electric vehicle or or a hybrid, uh, can you feel comfortable that there that those there are enough of those around for you to be able to do short commutes and and longer commutes depending on your vehicle? I would say, Mark, you can be totally confident as long as you've got an electric vehicle with a reasonable range. 
mean, I know a friend of mine with a Tesla went through Newfoundland and he said he did it just to prove, well, not, not just to prove, but he wanted part of that trip to also be to, to show that you can go to pretty uh, remote or rural areas with an electric vehicle without challenges. It didn't involve a bit of planning, I think, on his part. But to the point of network of charging stations, here in New Brunswick in particular, I think we've been lucky in that NB Power went out on a limb a bit and put in the eCharge network, which is a series of uh, fast chargers. Uh, they were initially along the Trans-Canada Highway from Edmondson all the way to Sackville, and then they expanded so that there is essentially a ring around the province. And, and even uh, from Fredericton to Miramichi, there's one halfway in the, across that distance uh, in Doaktown. So there's a whole network of chargers now that are out there. And, and that means you can go anywhere and you can find a charging station. And in my experience, it's not as though there's a big lineup when you get there. Most of the time, you'll find the charging station is unoccupied. Those are the fast chargers for longer trips. Um, there, are, there is also a huge network of level two chargers. Those are more the overnight type of chargers, and you find them at, uh, at hotels, for example, um, at some restaurants, at some shopping centers, those types of facilities. Um, but the big thing is, a charging station is not much use if you can't find it, I suppose. And there is a wonderful, I'll, I'll put in a plug for the app that I use. And I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by saying, I am far from being a technophile in terms of being on top of the latest everything. But uh, I use an app called PlugShare on my phone. And whenever you open, when you download a uh, plug share it, and, you, and you open it, it shows a Google map with little pins and they're color coded as to whether they're the fast chargers or the level two chargers. But it shows them right on that Google map. And if you open New Brunswick, you'd see that we had several hundred char charging, I think it's fair to say several hundred charging stations across New Brunswick. Now, there'd be probably maybe a couple of dozen fast chargers and the rest of them would be the level two chargers. But the point is, you see, when you've got an app like that and you've got a Google map and you can just zoom right in and say, okay, I think I will go for that charger. They even show whether a charging station is in use in real time or available at that moment. It's pretty slick and it's pretty simple. So then you can you can even click on get me directions to that station and then you have a Google map that says, okay, you're 23 kilometers away from it. And I know I use that in my electric vehicle because you see, I don't have a gas gauge in the bolt. It has a battery gauge and it tells me how many kilometers are left. So I'll just go to plug share and when I'm on a long trip and I'll say, okay, I've got so many kilometers. What are the charging stations that are within range? I'll click on one, put it in Google Maps, and it directs me straight to that charging station. It's pretty cool. So, so when you talk about that kind of pie and kind of our personal use of uh, uh, our personal consumption of fossil fuels, um, and you tick off the EV, uh, I, I'm uh, on Facebook a few weeks ago and scrolling, and I come across a post of yours, and you've installed uh, a solar power system for your home and for charging your car. Uh, can you tell me what inspired that project and how you embarked on it? Uh, well, yes, that was, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I was listening, Mark, to a radio program and someone called in and it seemed so casually they said, oh yeah, I've got an EV and then I've got a solar system and the solar system charges my car. And I, my jaw just about dropped because I'm thinking, whoa, that's so cool. I want that. But it seemed so far away, and I think it was about four years ago. But it got me thinking. I thought, boy, that would be the ultimate, wouldn't it? If all of a sudden you are able to generate your own energy for your home and then have an electric vehicle, so you also charge your electric vehicle, because essentially then you're more or less, aside from the manufacturing footprint of the, of the car and of the of the, uh, the the solar panels, you're pretty much eliminating those two biggest slices of your personal carbon pie chart. So 
I became interested right from the start, and I started to just keep an eye on where things were when it came to solar energy. I mean, renewable energy costs have been coming way down. They tend to be, uh, you tend to read a lot about how, for example, wind turbines have come way down in cost, and the cost of electricity produced by wind turbines has dropped way down. Same thing with, with solar panels. I mean, it's been exponential reductions in costs. So I've been keeping an eye on things, and I've established contact with a few people in the area who are suppliers here in New Brunswick of solar. And and I finally settled on one supplier and developed a good relationship. And we got together a few times and I asked a bunch of questions and I got them answered. And then I probably forgot half of the answers and went back and asked the same questions again. And my supplier was very patient with my own shortcomings, but helped me work towards a vision of a system here at home in Upper Kingsclear that we could install that would generate enough electricity to offset the bulk of our home's power bill and also charge the electric vehicle. And here in New Brunswick, we have a, um, a net metering program. That's the terminology for it. But that basically is an NB power system whereby you can generate power and you can feed it into the grid when you've got a surplus, then you draw it back when you've got a shortage, and then once a year they do a reckoning and they say, okay, how much did you use? How much did you produce? And they balance the books. That's at March 31st of every year under New Brunswick's net metering system. So I worked with my supplier and, uh, and I thought, well, I'd like to have a capacity that mostly meets the needs of our home and our vehicle. And I'd like to have emergency backup because we're out in the country here. And I still very clearly remember, I'm guessing a lot of people in New Brunswick remember Hurricane Arthur. And we were out for eight days. And here I was thinking in our home, we're pretty resilient because I thought about winter resilience whenever food wouldn't go bad if you just stuck it in a snowbank. Well, all of a sudden here we had this big hurricane in the middle of summer. And I realized, ay, ay, ay. Some of my critical systems here at home aren't working, so I guess I'm not that resilient after all. And so I thought, no, I'd like to have a battery backup to my solar system, so I don't need to worry ever about a generator, about having gasoline, or worrying if the generator starts, that type of thing. And so uh, my supplier, again, patiently worked with me. He looked at my power bills for the year, and then he sized a system that will meet between 80 and 90%, I think, of our power needs. And uh, it was just installed this fall. And we have battery backup down in the basement. It had its first test, Mark, I think about uh, two weeks ago, when we had quite a windstorm here in New Brunswick, and the power went out in our whole neighborhood. But we just had a little blink, and it seamlessly kicked right over to that battery backup system that we have downstairs. And then it kicked back to grid power when the power came on. So it's just freshly installed. I'm very much still learning about it. I call this my data year because I'm going to try to take really close notes and see how it goes. And another thing too is I hope this is the reason I posted it on um, on my Facebook page and in other, uh, other places on the internet as well is uh, it seems to me probably everybody else out there who's thinking about solar has the same barriers that I had in coming up with and finally getting to the point of putting in this system. So I'd like to make this available to anybody who'd like to come see it within COVID restrictions uh, for anybody who'd like to take a look at it or just reach out via the internet, email or phone just to chat a bit more about it because it seems to me that if, uh, if we see more real examples that are working, it helps us get over our own barriers and maybe it helps us understand that, you know what, that's within reach for me too. And in terms of, uh, you know, where it sits, so it, I, I think I said when I, the picture I saw online, uh, it seemed to be the whole structure of panels seemed to be, it looked like it was about twice the size of the car you have parked in, parked, uh, in front of it um, at the time when you took the picture. How, so how big is this system? I haven't exactly put a measuring tape to it, but I think it's a 16 panel system. It's 6.3 kilowatts of capacity. And I would say in terms of size, it measures maybe about eight meters or so by 
four meters, something like that. And it is sitting out in our yard. It's what's called a ground mount. So it has its own stand. And it probably would have been a little less expensive to put a solar array on our roof. But unfortunately, even though we live in this glorious R2000 house, it's oriented north-south. So which means it's about 90 degrees off of where it ought to be in terms of facing towards the sun. And also it's got a standard bungalow roof which means it's a bit flat. It would catch all kinds of sun in the summer, but it'd be under snow in the winter. And those two things made me think, yeah, we're probably not going to do real well with panels up there. I don't really have an appetite for being up on the roof all winter shoveling snow off of panels. So that's why we opted for a ground mount, because all of a sudden we can put it at the proper angle so it catches the most sun averaged over the summer, the spring, the fall, and the winter. And... Uh, and it's, 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 it's angled properly, and it's also oriented straight. It's oriented straight south. I, I remember when I first looked at the pictures um, online, I kind of thought of my own house, and I live in the south end of, uh, of St. John, facing south onto uh, the harbor. And uh, we would have the same challenges with our, our roof, but I, I was standing there at my front window with my wife, Janet, thinking, do you think we could put a system like that? Because <laughs> I was looking right out my our front window and thinking of this plot of land that sits in front of us and having a structure similar to this sort of facing facing the the harbor so i mean it kind of captures people's imaginations right and you think you know if carl can do this how can i do this right well i'm glad to hear that you're thinking that way because of course that was the purpose of it right because again i'm no technophile and and i'm not a wealthy person either but i just thought i want to do this and I was able to make it work here. So hopefully that inspires more people to think the same way, to say, hey, maybe I can do that too. Now, a bit of a caveat, I will say. I mean, I get we live out in the country and we have a two-acre lot. And so I had a bit of space, which is a luxury that some people in, in cities don't have. And that makes it a whole lot more challenging, especially if you've got trees around as well, because solar panels are greatly impacted by shading. And sometimes you say, yeah, I really like those trees or the neighbor really likes their trees as well. So it doesn't always work. Two thoughts on that. One, um, one would be maybe we need some regulatory changes going forward here in the province. And I think in other areas as well, because sometimes, um, uh, it's, sometimes it's rules that restrict us, from, for example, from having shares in a solar project that might be outside of our town. But feeds electricity into the grid, which we can then source where we are. You know, community solar projects don't necessarily have to be on rooftops if they can be outside of town in a rural area and we can have shares in them and say, okay, that's where my power array is. It's part of a larger one. Currently, from what I, can under, from what I understand, our regulations aren't very friendly for that happening. So that's a, I mean, that's where, where that's the domain of politicians and policymakers. But perhaps any 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 person who's a voter, as you and I are, have a role in mentioning that to our leaders to say, hey, we'd really be interested in you working towards that because that's probably a good thing for energy self sufficiency and reducing the carbon footprint of ourselves here in this province. Um, uh, so um, so that's one thing. Now, when you did the, the cost benefit on on uh, on your new solar power system, I think you had mentioned in your post that you thought you could recover the costs in, in 10 or 12 years. Uh, that's right. And oh, Mark, there was one other thing I was going to say further to that previous, if I could. And that yes. was, um, I get that not everyone's situation is conducive to installing panels the way we have done it here. So it speaks to the importance of designing for solar so that if you're ever building new, definitely design for, well, these days, I think you can, with a bit of commitment, design for net zero. And you can design for solar built right into a structure. So in other words, have that home that is oriented perfectly south. And with at least a portion of the roof, an adequate sized portion of the roof, at a at a proper angle, so it doesn't, uh, so so it can hold panels and won't catch snow. You know, it's so much easier to do it when you're designing properly from the start than trying to do a retrofit, even as we have done here. 
and to the economics of it. As I mentioned earlier, this is going to be my data year, I guess. So I hope to keep pretty close track of, of just how the system performs, how much it's saving us, how much it's generating month over month, day over day even. And it's really neat that this system has an online portal so you can go online and see in real time what the panel is generating. Also have a little display in the house so that you can just look and see, oh, the panel is gener generating X number of watts right at this minute. I'm a bit of a data geek, so I really like looking at that kind of a thing. Of course, the big data will come from power bills and that uh, March 31st comparison of how much did we use versus how much did we produce ourselves. The, the figure I put out there is kind of a, a general industry figure for payback on solar panels. It's roughly 12 years for a regular um, grid-tied system, and it's a touch longer for a system like ours where we have a battery backup because that means extra components like a, um, one of the key components is an inverter, and if you have a battery backup, you need a bit of an upscale inverter that can handle grid-level and battery-level power, plus, of course, you need that that bank of batteries. So 12-year payback would be an industry estimate just for a straight grid-tied bank of panels that just feeds into the power grid and feeds back again, and a little bit longer for something that's got a battery backup to it. But, you know, some people will say, wow, that's a slow payback. And my comeback to that would be, yeah, but it's a whole lot quicker payback than paying a power bill in perpetuity, which is the alternative. Right. So it's really, I mean, a lot of this is just, it's a mind shift, right? From, you know, the way we're used to, to consuming power and, and budgeting for power and thinking of it as more of a long-term thing that will, that will pay off, but you really need to make that shift, eh? I think you're right. You use the word mindset because it's interesting when we talk about uh, many things related to sustainability the first response will be, or the first question will be, oh yeah, but what's the payback? And and back to electric vehicles, that's the first thing that, that people will often ask. And I get the rationale for that, but then I might be res respond, if I can do it kindly and, and with not too much sass in my voice, I, I might say, well, what's the payback of your current vehicle? Or what's the payback of that big pickup truck? Because typically we don't seem to have that same expectation of non-sustainable investments or expenditures. But when it comes to sustainability, it's, it's a bit of a double standard, it seems to me, that we expect payback for some of these things that are related to saving energy. We expect a quick payback. You know, It seems to me any payback already makes sense, both for our wallets and also, more importantly, for our climate and the environment. It's, it's interesting you mentioned, uh, you know, building, you know, building new and, and making sure these considerations are top of mind when you're building new because another uh, one of the things that inspired me to reach out to you for this, you know, this chat today um, was not only your own post about, uh, you know, the you constructing a, a, a solar power system to power your home and power your car. Uh, but also, uh, you know, the announcement that there's going to be a solar powered neighborhood uh, constructed in, Mon in the Moncton area. And, you know, uh, Carl, that was a, another one too that greatly inspired people. You know, we, we published a story on it and, you know, it's, it's one of our top performing stories of, of the last month. Uh, and again, it was another thing that surprised me and struck me that, you know, maybe this is really starting to, to strike a chord with people and they are starting to see this could be possible for me too. I think you're right, Mark, and it's nice to see. I've, I've kind of seen the same thing. As I mentioned, I put this out there, and I got a, a lot of, for, about my own system. I put this out there, and I got a lot of responses, and a lot of people right away said, yeah, for sure. I want to see this thing sometime whenever I can come by and just, just to check it out. And, and, and uh, the story in Moncton, I mean, by total coincidence, that came out, I think, the same week as I put out the posting here. And boy, what a wonderful initiative that is as well, because that one will be even more of a, I mean, a lot of people, when it comes to renewables, they don't want hassles. And sometimes we perceive, oh yeah, if you've always got to be looking at batteries or gauges, or I don't want that. It's, you know, I like it the way I have my current system that when I flip the switch, something comes on. Well, this subdivision in Moncton, this whole project in Moncton is going to be 
basically that same way. Aside from being a totally sustainable subdivision, everything in those homes will be essentially as we've come used to in terms of managing energy. And, and uh, the only difference is we'll be generating it right there on site. I mean, totally cool that a subdivision, a development, becomes self-sufficient. And I think the interest speaks to the times, I suppose, because I do get the sense that uh, the symptoms of climate change are all around us. I do get the sense that there is a much greater awareness out there now that a lot of people are saying, you know what, this, this really is happening, and it's happening faster than we thought. We really have to do something about it. And I think a lot of people are seeing then all of a sudden something like solar making it just, uh, it's quantum leaps forward in terms of usability and affordability and convenience then automatically people will gravitate to that. I, I really do think, to your point, I think there's just a change happening out there where there's a lot more interest, a lot more enthusiasm, and that's a really good optimistic uh, note. Um, just given that we, we've been through a pretty pretty lousy year this year with a lot, of, a lot of tough stories and a lot of tough reality, and it's nice to see when it comes to renewables, there seems to really be a movement taking root to where it's going to really take off. You know, I'd mentioned four years ago uh, in my initial post, four years ago, hearing about somebody who was doing the thing that I'm doing now, and it seemed so outlandish, so distant, so complicated so far, and here I am now with it. So who knows where will we be, we be um, project forward four years, and maybe everyone will have a system like this. Who knows? It's moving pretty fast, and that's just a, that's just a really positive development. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think back to the beginning of our conversation and you talking about, you know, your, your childhood and how you became aware and that very, you know, that, that feeling of how, um, you know, pollutants in the air affect you directly. Right. And I think of, you know, occasionally I go out for long runs here in, in St. John and, and, and of course, as you, you know, St. John's very industrial and, uh, there are mornings when I, I'm running out near kind of the, the oil refinery area and, and I, I can taste a, I can taste something in my mouth still, right. Running by that refinery. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what it is, right. I'm not, I'm not that educated enough about what might be in the air, but um, the reason why I mention it is, is I feel that Carl, like, and I think to myself, should I be paying more attention to, you know, the air that I breathe and what I can do, to, you know, to make this place a better and more healthy place to live? Um, how is it impacting me personally? And it, and it makes me think of uh, what we've gone through in the last year. And I know uh, you have to be really, really careful with artificial and, you know, false, you know, false equivalencies. Um, but we, you know, we've acted very uh, resolutely uh, and globally around, coronavirus and 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 you have heard the stories around you know making the same kinds of comparisons oh i wish we could we could tackle climate change in the same kind of resolute um we need to act now because it actually is impacting us personally in you know in the same way that 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 covid19 is affecting us personally what what goes what's gone through your head in the last year about are there lessons to learn about how we should tackle climate change and how we should see it as a personal issue in the same way, you know, you as a, as a, as a young boy living in Northern New Brunswick saw it as a personal issue and something that affected you and the people in your community? Well, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting. You mentioned about running past the refinery and, and the smells and, and the, that type of thing. And, you know, maybe, maybe it would do well for all of us to wonder just for a minute, where's that stuff go? And what is that stuff doing to me? Interesting, uh, Mark, I do. I strive to stay current on a lot of issues related to climate change. And, and so I've got quite a news feed coming in. And yesterday I was catching up on some backlogs and I came upon, uh, I think it was a TED talk. And it referenced a, a French company, Danone. And they have a new, if I have this right, uh, they have a new slogan, One World, One Health. The idea being that uh, they are largely a consumer products company in terms of uh, food, uh, food brands. And they say, you know, uh, the two things are linked, good food, good health. Uh, they're linked to a healthy planet. So one world, one health. 
is their theme. I see things happening at a at an industrial level, at or sorry, at a at a at a corporate level that way that give me great optimism. Uh, and and I think what's happened south of the U.S. south of the border with the U.S. election, my heavens, day by day we're hearing announcements of of appointees, and they are all in line with a new focus post COVID on maybe using that same model or that same type of focus of energy um, on moving from COVID as a crisis to the climate change crisis, which of course is a much bigger crisis, but it's even though it's been relegated to the backseat um, during COVID. But you know, some of the nice things from COVID, I think that taught us we can move very quickly if we need to. We can mobilize all kinds of resources if we need to. And it is possible to get countries uh, internationally working together if we need to. Those, it seems to me, are nice takeaways from the COVID crisis that hopefully we can seamlessly uh, keep roll, roll into dealing with our climate crisis. You know, we've got some, some big hurdles. We need to make some big, big reductions uh, quickly. And hopefully we can use those approaches that we've kind of beta tested here during the COVID, COVID crisis uh, to tackle climate change and, and, and really see the momentum in things like what we were talking earlier with solar energy, um, to see that sustained and moving forward. And, and again, you know, to your point, I, I, I do think that, um, that things need to happen at a big level, like governments and corporations, but they also need to happen at an individual level. You know, when I was a kid, some of the best, when I was a kid, when I was leaving the North Shore, heading for university, I got some of the best advice I've ever gotten in my life. Came from my dear mom. Uh, and when I was leaving home, mom said, you know, here I was, a young person, 18 years old, heading off to university and bound to change the world, right? And my mom said to me, Carl, maybe you can't change the whole world, but you can change your little corner of the world. And that really resonated with me, you know, and that, maybe that speaks to your point where each of us has the ability to make a difference in our own lives, in our own spheres of influence. And sure, things have to happen at a high level, but each of us can make a really significant difference in our own little corners of the world too. Yeah, and it makes me think too of, uh, I had a conversation um, several weeks ago on the podcast with Colleen Dantremont from the Atlantica Center for Energy and, you know, she, she said something that, that surprised me because um, I, I wasn't up on the polling trends, which is that uh, large companies and countries are starting to respond to shifts in, you know, in public opinion. And so even the, the work of, of the center, uh, you know, was, was shifting to focus more on, on renewables. And it was being led there by companies that were leading that charge. And, and she, she made the very strong point that, it's it's average people that are that are that groundswell that's forcing companies and and governments to to respond maybe too slowly sometimes in our in our estimation right but still respond and and so she had kind of made that pitch for it is the importance of the individual and that becomes a collective right if 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 enough people care and a lot of people change their own personal habits um, but also put pressure on policymakers and put pressure on companies, right? Oh, you're right about that, you know, and it's, and it's interesting. I mean, even as you mentioned about uh, um, uh, changes happening in big corporations, yesterday as well, I was reading a piece that talked about BP, British Petroleum. And they're, of course, one of the big, the, I think they call them the oil majors around the world, right? They're huge. Well, they have a goal of being a carbon neutral energy company by 2050. That's just 30 years from now. Now, it's a goal. It hasn't happened yet. That's a huge challenge. But even the fact that they make that as set that as a goal, announce it publicly. Wow, that speaks to just a massive shift happening in that area. And here's another one too, Mark, I think that is really important too. And again, each of us can have a role in this one too. I'm looking right here at a story on my screen that was from uh, two days ago from CNBC. The headline is, Seven Trillion Asset Manager BlackRock Makes Climate Change Central to Its Investment Strategy for 2021. Now, you, you know, um, 
an awful lot of fossil fuel developments only happen because they have financing out there and uh, and renewables only happen when there is financing for them. And I would say, since I've been looking more closely at the whole area of financing for about the last uh, year or so, there has been a sea change happening in terms of sustainability as a priority for investors. Sure, the insurance companies have been saying for years, yeah, we got to be more resilient and we have to invest in renewables. Insurance companies are well aware of climate change. Banking institutions and pension funds and all that, they've been, I think, a little slower. But boy, are they ever coming around now. And it's rare the week that passes that I don't see something like that headline I just mentioned to you coming into my news feed about some big source of financing saying, yeah, we're going to redirect out of fossil fuels and we're getting into renewables. I mean, that takes the momentum out of the stuff that we need to get out of as we decarbonize. But it also puts all of that, in, that money as an infusion into the industries that we really, really need to ramp up and scale up as we go towards decarbonization. To me, again, big, big area where change is happening. And again, each of us have choices on that too, because again, to individual action, each of us, well, we may have savings, we may have RSPs, we may have pensions, we have voices. And we can, uh, we can direct our dollars towards where they make the most positive difference to. Well, thanks a lot, Carl. This is a, a great chat. I, I hope to be able to uh, be, do one, do, visit, your, uh, visit your place and check out your, your solar panel operation. Mark, you're most welcome to come see it sometime. And uh, hopefully we'll be over these COVID restrictions soon that will enable more people to come and see it because I'm, I'm happy to show it. Uh, if that can be some small catalyst to more and more people adopting this type of thing so that we can reduce our carbon, uh, our carbon footprint and, uh, and uh, become energy self-sufficient and, uh, and uh, deal with climate change as quickly as possible. It's been a pleasure, and I hope this information today has been helpful. All right. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the latest episode of Huddle Home Office, and that was episode number 30. And thank you very much, Carl, for joining us uh, for that great chat, and thank you, too, to Inda Intiar in Moncton. Home Office is produced by me, Mark Legier, Sharice Letson, and Tyler McLean. And you can subscribe to Home Office on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. We'll talk to you next week.